Um, I've, I've never been much of a fighter in, in my life. Uh, I remember that old song that Michael Jackson sang that he used to say, I'm a lover, not a fighter. And that's, that's been my heart, that I, I don't like getting in, in uh, physical altercations at all. Um, I've become more dogged in my older years, and, and that's caused me a little bit of trouble in having you know, debates with people, things like that. But as far as physical altercations, I just think that they're, they're silly. But when I was younger, there were a couple of occasions where I did, I did, I did throw a punch or two. One of them, when I was 13 years old, me and my friends used to go to the local mall in uh, the Seattle area. And on the weekends, what we would do is go to the mall. And I know this sounds silly, but as 13-year-old boys, it's kind of what you did. You just, we just go and we'd follow girls around. Uh, it, was, it was weird. They would giggle and we would giggle and all sorts of stuff. But we didn't know, we didn't know the girls. We'd just sort of follow them around as, as groups and occasionally talk to them, but not, not really. There were other guys in my school who would do it in their little groups as well. And so it kind of became a, a case where there were sort of competing gangs of three or four guys who were wandering around the mall from the same school looking to uh, giggle with, with certain groups of girls. Um, on this one occasion, uh, we, me and my two or three friends were walking uh, around the mall. We saw another one of these groups of guys. That, that group of guys came over and they sort of started making jokes about us and we were making jokes about them. And <clears throat> we started to walk away and one of the guys on, in their group, basically he, t he playfully kicked me in the rear end and they started laughing. And I don't, I don't know what caught a hold of me, but I just spun around, cocked my, my fist and just hit him right in the chin. Now, every time I'd ever seen that happen in a movie, uh, the person who gets hit in the chin, go, like they go down. This guy didn't. I mean, he sort of staggered backwards and I expected him to go onto the ground. Uh, he, he put one hand on the ground and then he kind of just rose right back up. And I thought, uh-oh, what, what have I done? He was very angry. You see the fire in his eyes. He was very angry. And so in that split second, I made a business decision. Either I was going to stick around and get into this fight in the middle of Bellevue Square. It's really swanky mall in the, in the east side of Seattle. Or I was going to turn tail and run as fast as I could somewhere where he wasn't going to get me. And being the coward that I am, I, I turned around and I ran away as fast as I could. Uh, I, I went into a a flower store, because I thought, surely he's not going to come into the flower store and want to fight me, because, you know, there are flowers and vases all over the place, and so he didn't. He stood at one entrance, and there was another entrance that went into the mall of the flower store, and his buddy stood at the other, and I just decided, look, I could stay here all day, right? Flowers smell good. And so I stayed there for a good 20 minutes, and they finally, they finally left. My two friends, I came out of the flower store feeling, you know, a mixture of sheepish and intelligent, for avoiding the confrontation, but my friends came over to me and one of them said to me, good move. And the other one looked at my other friend and said, really? I'm not, I'm not so sure it was such a good move. I, my, my man card was dropped down two levels that day in his, his, his eyes. Most of us don't like fighting. Uh, we'll avoid it at, at any cost. I, I think uh, where we live, we try our best to uh, walk away 
or not get involved. Sometimes when people are having a little bit of scuffle, it goes through your mind, well, maybe I should step in. But most of the time we say, no, well, I'm just going to pull back. I don't want to get, I don't want to fight. I don't want to get involved in an altercation. I might speak boldly about the situation at home with my friends or with my, my spouse later, but I'm in the moment, I just, you know, let's, let's just keep our noses out of it, tends to be our approach. This is an interesting perspective, and I think it probably leads to the fact that when I tell people that actually as Christians, we're in a fight. The Bible's really explicit about this, that there is a battle waging, and you have an enemy of your soul. He's called Satan, or the devil, or all sorts of names in the Bible. But you're in a fight, and there is no option to turn tail and run. You, you have to stand, and you have to face him, there's no flower shop nearby to get away to. So how do we do that? For the last number of weeks, we've actually been talking about both the fact that we are in a fight and then what are the character traits of the enemy so that we know how to combat him when we get in the fight itself. But these last two weeks in this series on spiritual warfare, we're going to talk actually about how we are called to fight. We're going to look specifically at the key passage in the New Testament about this. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. We're going to do it in two weeks. This week we're going to do verses 10 to 18, sorry, 10 to 17, and next week we're going to do verses 18 to 20. So, Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 17, how does the fight described there? And so there are kind of three steps to Paul's argument here. Number one, he, he describes the strength that he that God gives us for the fight. Second, the reason that we need the strength for the fight. And then finally, the armor that's been provided for us for the fight. So the strength for the fight, the reason for the fight, and the armor for the fight. So let's, let's jump into it in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, writes Paul, this is the end of his letter. These are my last words to you guys. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I want to stop there. Now, there's some background that would really help, I think, us understand the, the pop of those very few words. Um, Ephesus, the, the place that he was writing to, the church of, of the Ephesians, was a city that had about 250,000 people in it, lots and lots of temples. Had you gone to ancient Ephesus, that's one of the things that you would have noted, how many different temples there were, how many different gods and goddesses were worshipped. But there was one that was greater and grander than all the others, uh, the, the temple to the goddess Artemis, or in Roman, the goddess Diana. She was uh, supposed to bring fertility both to the land and to your family. And in the days when the richest people had crops and kids, she was the great deity who could provide, supposedly provide all those things for you. And so she was greatly worshipped in the city of Ephesus to provide the people with those things. She provided a kind of spiritual power. Uh, and if you worshipped her or sacrificed to her enough, <clears throat> she would give you as many kids as you wanted or as many crops as, as you wanted. She was the way that you could achieve your spiritual power dreams. There were other things in Ephesus, though, that were like that. There, there's actually an ancient um, little six-word phrase that most people don't have a clue what it means, but they're just six Greek words that go together. 
And when they found them on, on amulets, you know, little discs or necklaces that people used to wear in those days. And on those discs, they, they, they called them the Ephesia Grammata, the, the Ephesian letters. And by stating these words, you could basically, they were like magic. They would, they would you know, help you get what you wanted. I remember years ago, somebody gave me something like this. We were trying to sell candy bars at the front door of a, of a grocery store, and they gave me this little card and said, hey, if you say this every time, you'll sell more candy bars. So me and my friends were like, hey, if it's going to sell candy bars, we just started saying it. And in our minds, it worked. Well, that's basically what the Ephesia Grammata was. It was a little mantra that you could say and you could get things from the gods because you had the power now, the spiritual power that you needed. In Ephesus, when the Apostle Paul actually comes through in Ephesians chapter, or um, in Acts chapter 19, one of the things that takes place is that uh, he preaches the gospel, a whole bunch of people start responding, and the first thing that they do is they give up their magic tools. So you read that in Ephesians, or um, Acts chapter 19, verse 19. It says, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. It's about $5 million equivalent to today. So we're talking about a lot of money. We're talking about a lot of magic scrolls. It should give you an idea of how into magic or how into spiritual power the Ephesians were. So when you take that as a background and then you go back and you read this short verse again, it does provide a little bit more understanding on why it is that Paul uses these phrases and why this, these particular phrases would be appealing to the Ephesians. He says, finally, as my last words in this book, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Don't be strong in the power of Artemis. Don't be strong in the power of the Ephesia Grammata. Don't be strong in his mighty power. Be strong in the Lord. That little phrase, in the Lord, really gives away what Paul is trying to get at here. What does it mean to be strong in the Lord? Well, that phrase, in the Lord or in Christ, is found all over the place in the book of Ephesians. So when you go to the beginning of the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1, here's, here's how it reads. Uh, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God's given us every spiritual blessing in the Lord, in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Verse 7 then, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. See, Ephesians chapter 1 is really trying to say that, look, everything that you have as a Christian, every blessing... Every good thing that you have as a Christian is because of your union with Christ. You're in Christ. So using the words that Paul's using here, if you want to be strong and fight the battle, spiritual battle, you need to be strong in the Lord. You need to be strong in Christ. Okay, well, what does that, what does that mean? What does it mean to be strong in union with Christ? <clears throat> well, uh, 
maybe the way to put it is if I get, imagine I get an airplane. Um, it might not surprise you, it shouldn't surprise you, that I can't personally fly. I've wanted to. Um, people ask you the question, what superhero power do you want? I'm usually choosing flying, because I, I just think that would be great. I can't personally fly. Uh, I can't personally you know, go 1,000 kilometers an hour. But the moment I get in an airplane, I, I am enveloped in the airplane, I'm in the plane, and all of a sudden the things that the plane is able to do are things that I'm able to do. I'm actually going to be hurtling through the air at 1,000 kilometers an hour, flying, breaking the law of gravity, basically, because of my union with the plane. And this is, the, this is a good picture. This is essentially what Jesus is for us. He, he is the one who has all the ability to, to fight. He's all the power to win the battle against Satan and his minions. But we can't do it on our own. We actually have to be in him. We have to focus on the fact that we have all of these resources in Christ. His power is ours. So we might fear <coughs> the fight. It's very easy for us to start being a little bit frightened by the idea that we're going to face Satan, we're going to, we're going to battle against uh, spiritual forces of darkness. That sounds really, really scary. This is the kind of thing you make a TV show about. and it's, it's, it's not an exciting thing because you know you might lose. But we aren't fighting with our own strength. We're fighting with the power of one who's able to battle the monsters in a greater way than us. Actually, I, I, there's a dumb movie that I have liked. Every 13-year-old boy in the world likes this movie. It's called Pacific Rim. Uh, it's basically about a bunch of monsters that appear from under the water, come and try to destroy a whole bunch of cities. So in order to fight back against them, human beings create what they call Jaegers, massive uh, robots that can punch the kaiju, which is the, the monsters coming from the deep, in the face. So most of the movie is just a bunch of, you know, you know monsters being punched in the face by these, little, by, these big, uh, by these big Jaegers that are manned by, by human beings inside. So I, I actually got a picture. Uh, it's, it's a geeky, awesome picture. The, these are the Jaegers, these guys here, and this is the monster. So I, I'm showing you this because I actually think that this is a good, this is a good idea. Uh, as to what we're trying to do. So I, I use the illustration of a plane, but maybe it's better to state that, look, we're, we're fighting against the, the greatest monster that there is in Satan, but we can't stand. If I stand and I want to face those great monsters, those big kaiju, and they're going to attack me, I have no ability to do it in and of myself. But if I'm able to step inside of this massive machine that I can control or that, that can arm me with what I need for the fight, then all of a sudden the fight becomes very different. I'm able to stand against him. So that's what it means to be strong in the Lord, is that you're in Christ. He is the great Jaeger. Uh, that's probably not the greatest illustration in the world, but every 13-year-old boy loves it, and so do I. He's the great Jaeger who will, who, who, will, who will envelop us and give us the ability that we need to fight. So the strength for our fight comes from the Lord himself. Secondly... The, re the reason we're fighting, verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Note that little phrase, devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when 
the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Now, there's a couple phrases that I really want to point out there um, that show why it is that we're fighting. The first one is that little phrase at the beginning, we, we need to take our stand against the devil's schemes. That word schemes is actually the Greek word for methods. Uh, it's a plural, which means that there's more than one. There's more than one approach. There's more than one way that Satan is going to try to attack us. I brought this up in a, in a previous sermon, but I, I really want to bring it back to us. The goal that Satan has in our lives is actually for our, what we call apostasy, for our turning away from Christ to something else. So when Job was, uh, you know, when the, Satan was talking to God in the beginning of Job, he was saying, you know, God, the reason that Job follows you is because you coddle him. But if you let me at him, he'll turn and curse you to your face. And that's Satan's goal. He wants you to turn away from God, to love something else more, so that you betray God, that you, you become an apostate. That's his goal for every, every Christian. But that destination has many different roads that lead to it. Satan's got lots of different paths that might get there. Many different schemes, many different approaches to get to that one objective. So sports is a really good way to talk about this. I mean, like I, I said in a few sermons ago that, it, you know, if you play sports at all, you know that the way that you, inter, the way that you beat your opponent is, is figuring out what their weakness is and, and attacking that particular weakness. And so if you play soccer, there are lots of different ways to win a soccer game. Sometimes you, you can press the, the, when the, the other team has the ball near their goal, you, you press on them to get the ball back, and so you, you can shoot it really quickly. The danger is that they can kick it long, and guys can run behind you and have a free shot at your goal, basically. You can soak up pressure and counterattack. You can control the ball with these little tippy-tappy things and kind of move it down the field and be really balanced. There's lots of different ways, lots of different avenues by which you can get to the, to the win. Well, similarly, I think Satan's got lots of different avenues through which he can achieve the goal. What he's looking for in you is a particular weakness. I said I played tennis a number of weeks ago when I was growing up, and I did. I hurt my back on one occasion when I was playing in a championship match in a tournament. And uh, I, was, I was better than the other kid, and I thought for sure I, I was going to win. I won the first set. It was best two sets out of three, and so I won the first set. And then somewhere in the early part of the second set, when I was leading, my, my back just tweaked. So I could stay on the baseline, I could hit the ball, but I couldn't go to the net. Because in order to go to the net, I would have to often bend down to, to dig the ball out. Immediately, my opponent recognized this. And so for the rest of the match, all he did was hit what we call drop shots, ball, ball jitters right near the net. And I would come up, and I could barely bend over to get them. And he kept winning point after point after point. I remember at one point, I came to the net while trying to get the drop shot. And he was standing just on the other side, smiling. And I said to him, I hate you. <laughs> Didn't punch him, though. But that's the picture, right? That's, that's, that's the picture. That's what Satan does. He figures out what it is that your weakness is, and he focuses on it. He adapts. He identifies your weakness. So what is, what is your weakness? Like, are you given over to money? Is your great dream in your life that you could have more and more money so that you could be comfortable and that you could build bigger barns, say? Or you could basically have all the comforts that you possibly can get and ride in your boat and 
fly in your plane and have an enormous house, then you'll be happy. Is that your thing? Satan would love to get you addicted to money. Because it'll steer your heart away from Christ. It'll become a God to you. You think that it's going to provide all your needs. That's what God's supposed to do. So we'd love to get you addicted to your money. Do you, what, how about maybe your weakness is the praise of people. Maybe you, you think, well, if I just get those people to think I'm, I'm good at this or that they'll like me, then I'll be happy. Well, he's happy to give you over to that thirst for fame and recognition. Very happy. Anything that, he, that, that can be raised up above God in your life, he wants to say, all right, we're going to play with that one. Power, maybe? You want to be in charge and control of everything? Cool, we'll, we'll work with power. Any idol, anything that he can use, he'll start hitting those drop shots. And you'll be caught. Well, the devil not only has schemes, plural, but you notice in that passage, the devil also attacks on the day of evil. In verse 13, it says, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Well, what are we talking about there, the day of evil? In other parts of the New Testament, Paul actually says we live in the present evil age. That's something he says all the time, right? The present evil age is passing away, and the age to come has come upon us. We live between the ages. That the new, the heaven, new heavens and new earth is going to be when the evil age passes away, and it's just the age to come, right? That's not really what he's talking about here. He, he's, he's talking more about the idea that there are certain days in the midst of a war where the enemy assaults with more ferocity. The Pearl Harbor days. Not every day was like Pearl Harbor. Uh, the Japanese did not always, every day, fly airplanes and bomb, uh, bomb the Americans in, in Hawaii. But there was a particular mission, a particular day that they did that. That was the day of evil. It was the, the specific day in which they had more ferocity. Uh, D-Day in World War II, where an assault was laid on the French coastline. That, that's, a, that's a specific day. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying essentially, look, Satan has these days of evil in his mind. His, his approaches to you are not always going to be the same approaches. His um, ferocity is not always going to be the same ferocity. So you find that uh, Jesus actually was being tempted by Satan in, in the book of Luke. And he was being tempted for 40 days. And at the end of that time, Satan withstands the test. And at the end of the time, in Luke 4, verse 13, after all the tempting's gone and Jesus has withstood it, he's obeyed. It says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him. He left Jesus until an opportune time. Yeah, that's right. Satan's waiting for an opportune time. Or a day of evil. And so Paul's trying to urge you, say, listen, you need to put on this full armor of God so that you're ready on the day of evil. It's not going to, every day is not going to feel like an attack from Satan, but there will be days and you need to be prepared like a good soldier, prepared for the, for the onslaught, onslaught. So strength for the fight, the reason for the fight Satan plays dirty, and he's going to assault us on evil days. How, then, 
Let's get to the how. We've talked about the armor of God. We need to be empowered in Christ. We need to be ready because he's going to attack. How? Well, Paul gets into this really cool description. He, he basically uses a Roman soldier as his model. He's probably in prison at the time, and he's looking at a Roman soldier, and he's saying, now this guy's wearing a whole bunch of, uh, this, a whole bunch of clothing that is particularly useful for a battle. So he uses, he lists off the clothing and he applies them to what Christians have in Christ. So he says in verse 14, uh, stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So I have a picture of a Roman guard. This guy's running. And that's pretty much what they looked like and the kinds of clothing they, they wore with the boots and the, and, and the belts and, and the breastplate and the helmet. But there are a whole bunch of uh, specifics that we want to get to. So when he talks about the belt of truth, Paul's actually referring to this little, uh, this little belt here. It's a, it's a, a leather kind of skirt that, that uh, warriors wore so that it would protect both their midsection and their thighs. So you took a, um, an arrow or a spear and you hit that piece of leather, it would basically blunt the force of, of, the, of the attack. So you're, we are called to wear the belt of truth. How about the next one, the, the, the breastplate of righteousness. This is kind of a picture of uh, the kinds of metal armor that they would wear on the, on the breastplate. It was supposed to protect their, their inner organs. I love throwing these things. Um, the next, way, next one is uh, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. This is kind of a cool one in some ways because I want you to notice these little studs on the bottom of these shoes. So they took these little nails that have these little round bits at the end and they would nail them into the bottom. It looks a lot like what it would look like if you played a, in a soccer game or in a football game and you needed some cleats or you needed some, something to give you traction. Well, that's what they used for, for their shoes and there's a reason for that. Um, if you were trying to defend, defend your position, one of the things that you needed to make sure is that when the onslaught came from the enemy, you could dig your feet in hard enough so that you would have some sort of traction to push back. This is a really important picture because ultimately what it means is that, is that we actually have the ground already, right? We're, we are called to stand in this passage. We are not called to assault. We are not called to take that ground. We are called to stand. And the reason we're called to stand is because we already have the ground. Jesus has already won the victory. Our job now is to stand in the truth of that by wearing this armor of truth and of righteousness and the readiness of the gospel of peace. Uh, the shield of faith, it says, which is carved wood, basically. It's a convex um, shield of wood that had on the outside a bunch of animal skins, and they would soak it in water before every battle. And the reason for that is because uh, when your enemy was attacking, they'd shoot these flaming arrows at you and they'd, they'd land. Your job as a soldier oftentimes was to have, if you're on the bottom, is to put your shield in the front, and if you're on the top, to hold it above, 
and the water on the animal skins helped to extinguish the arrows. Paul says, you have one of these. It's, it's your faith. It's your belief in, in Christ. It's your belief that what's, what he says is true. So when the Satan comes and he attacks you with these arrows, you're able to say, no, that's, that's not true. I believe in what Jesus says. The helmet of salvation. I like this one. It's, it covers both the neck and the head. The helmet actually gave them a lot of confidence. It made them feel like, uh, you know, I, I'm protected more than anything else, probably because you could feel it on, on your head. You go without your, I feel that when I ride my bike, go without your helmet. I feel very exposed thinking, I don't want to fall in any way or I'm going to crack my head open. Well, for them, that was the same thing. Similarly, the helmet of salvation for us is, gives us confidence to go forward in the battle. We know ultimately that we're saved. We know ultimately, no matter what happens in the fight, Jesus has got us. He has provided for us. Finally, there's the sword of the spirit. This is the only offensive weapon. Everything else is defensive. Everything else is empowering you to stand. But this one, the sword of the spirit, which is right here, it's like a short dagger. It's about two feet long. And it was used to thrust at in close contact. So the picture here is a a hand-to-hand combat, and you got your shield there, and you're extinguishing the arrows, and your feet are dug in with your with your cleats, and you've got the breastplate there, but you, you, can, you can fight back. And the way you fight back is with the sword of the Spirit, which is called the Word of God here, the Bible. That is your ammunition for the fight. Now, when you step back from this whole list, one of the things that you immediately notice is that every one of those pieces of armor, if you look in the Old Testament, every one of them is used to describe God and, and his Messiah, Jesus. Everyone. So you find passages like Isaiah 11, verse 5. Righteousness will be his belt. Speaking of the Messiah here. Righteousness will be his belt and truth the sash around his waist. Isaiah 59, 17. He put, he put on righteousness as bre- his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Isaiah 52, verse 7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. That word means gospel. Who proclaim peace, the gospel of feet that bring the gospel of peace. Like, what's going on? Why is Paul picking all of these character traits? You know, gospel of peace and righteousness and truth. Why is he picking all of these things? Well, essentially, he's saying that when you put on the armor, essentially, you're putting on Christ. These are the things that Christ was supposed to be and was. He was promised in the Old Testament to be righteous and to grant his righteousness to us. He was truthful. So when we put on Christ, when we live in the reality that we're in Christ, when we are strengthened in the Lord... That's what the picture is. You're putting on the armor. So what does that look like? Um, What does that look like? Well, um, specifically, you can see an example of what this looks like in when Jesus fights Satan. Um, Many of us know that story. Uh, Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. Satan tempts him. He tempts him three different times urging him in different ways, you know, one of his different schemes to try to get Jesus to turn away from his mission, to turn away from God. And Jesus responds in every case by quoting scripture. 
He hears basically what Satan has to say, and he responds with passages of the Bible that are true. He's basically taking Satan's words and saying, all right, let's analyze what you're trying to say to me. And I'm going to compare it to the truth and what's righteous. I'm going to compare it to the gospel of peace. And we're going to see in the end whether it stacks up. And at the end, I'm going to thrust the sword of the spirit back at you, Satan. I'm going to give you the word of God. And that's what he does. And this is a great model. This is essentially what it means to put on the whole armor of God, right? To live inside the reality that Jesus is your king and that you have all that he has given you, that you're in that Jaeger. You have all the power and authority and you're going to compare what he's fighting you with, with, with his arrows. You're going to compare those things to the truth of what scripture teaches. So let me give you three different examples in just real terms. I want you to imagine that Christians sometimes get divided by politics or their views on um, a pandemic. I know that that's hard for you to understand or to picture, but it happens from time to time. And you know the way it goes is that Satan is saying to, to us, um, your view matters the most. <clears throat> the entire future totally depends on your side winning. This is not just an opinion versus an opinion. This is war. This is ultimately the most important thing ever. You're being duped by all those people who believe that particular thing about the pandemic. Or look at all those idiots who believe that thing about the pandemic. Who would vote for him? Who would vote for him? I can't be friends with anyone. Satan is basically speaking to, listen, you should be bitter and you should form uh, divisions over this whole thing, over politics. Okay, let's take those arrows. They'll hit our shield of faith and let's compare our faith, what we know to be true, right? The belt of truth and breastplate of righteousness. Let's compare what he's saying to the truth. Well, actually, the, the scriptures teach that, that actually the kingdom of God is the biggest thing and that the, the rulers of our world will make decisions here and there, but ultimately, God is going to work out his eternal plan through their decisions, whether righteous or unrighteous. And that our responsibility is to trust him in the process, to pray for our leaders, and to seek the good of our community the best we can, and not freak out about it, not worry, and especially not divide the church over such silly things. So here's a thrust, Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Why do the rulers say that? I love this line. The Lord, the one enthroned in heaven, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Why do you think that all of your plans raised up against me and my church and my kingdom are somehow going to come to a fruition. <laughs> How cute. We serve a sovereign God. There's no need to fear. There's no need to cut ties with my Christian brothers and sisters because we don't agree about some silly political view. How about another option? Uh, something a little bit maybe more, more personal. So uh, say you want to buy into the viewpoint in our culture and the one that tempts us a lot that I mentioned earlier, that you want to accumulate wealth as much as you can at the ex expense of generosity. There's nothing wrong with accumulating wealth. There is something, everything wrong with hoarding it. 
So you're going to hoard, not, not be generous, but hoard your, your wealth. And Satan comes along and says, good for you. Keep it all. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but you'll need it. The world is a mess. Everything's going upside down. It's very difficult. And you are the one who worked hard for it. You're the one who's responsible for it being here. You're not like all those other people out there who stink at this. And they're poor because of it. You are phenomenal. And think, think of all the new toys that you could buy that will really make you happy. You know that, right? I mean, in your old age, you're going to want all the toys. All the people you know who are happiest have the toys. Satan, it's just, there's your arrows. There's your arrows, all right? So hold our seal of faith up. We're going to put on that armor. And we say, okay, is this true? Is it righteous? Let's compare it to what God has to say. Well, God says, actually, um, the kingdom of God is about more than, than stuff. You can't serve God and man, and you can't serve God and, and money. You either love the one or hate the other. That ultimately, that money can actually get in the way of your service to God. It will wean your heart away like it did to the rich ruler. So that when you're confronted with the idea that, hey, you're either going to have to choose Jesus as your sufficiency or your money as the sufficiency, if you have a lot of it, you're going to say, money, money. It's doing more for me right now, money. There's a story about the rich fool in Luke chapter 12 who builds the bigger barns. And after that story, Jesus starts talking about why, why are you worried about what it is you're going to eat or wear? God knows you have need of these things. You're better than the ravens. He loves you more than that. He more, loves you more than the lilies of the field. He ends that statement in Luke 12, 33. He says, so sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, your heart, there your heart will be also. How about one more? A lot of us look at Instagram. And one of the things that happens when we look at Instagram or social media is we tend to compare ourselves to other people. I know this is a problem particularly for a number of women in my life and a number of women I've met and counseled and talked to in the past. But it certainly is also a problem for lots of guys. When we look at Instagram and somebody's on a holiday, we're like, oh my goodness, I want to be on that holiday. And they look at their beautiful house and, oh, I want that kind of house. And so when, when we look at that, you can just feel the arrows from Satan coming. Hey. You do know you're nothing compared to her, right? I mean, look at how she's got it all together. Look at the pictures. They're phenomenal. They go, they go to Europe every year. Look at they travel all over the place. Her ham family's happy. They take pictures together. They, they visit the aquarium together. You can't get your kids to walk out of the door to go and feed the fish, much, much less go and watch them in, in, in a tank in Vancouver think you're a good parent, you can just hear, you can just hear the arrows come and your heart starts to sink. Essentially, Satan's saying, you know what, if I were you, I'd just pack it in. You're basically rejected by men and probably God. Look at your Christian life, you're not any good. Give it up, pack it in. So what are we going to do? Well, shield of faith, belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, what are we going to do? Let's compare that to the truth of Scripture. Well, uh, God has made you uniquely. He takes great pleasure in you. Uh, he sings over you with joy 
or rejoices over you with singing, to quote Zephaniah. He talks about how it's, it's, it's a greater thing for you to be a, a woman or a person of noble and gentle spirit, to be beautiful that way in the works of God than it is for you to look all the right way. Nothing wrong, wrong with looking good, but if that's your only focus, something's off. And ultimately, all this talk about being rejected by God, not being up to the up to the level, Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order we may also share in his glory. There's nothing that you see on Instagram or any other place that in the new heavens and new earth won't be yours multiple times over. Look, The fight is hard. The enemy is dangerous. It's easy to be fearful. But put on the armor. Take your stand. Thrust the sword. And you will see the victory. Let me pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your grace and for the provision you have given us in Christ. And that all of these things are his, and by being in him, they are ours. So bless us, Father, with that knowledge. Help us wear the armor. Help us focus on who we are in Christ. Help us extinguish those arrows and thrust back with the word of God. We thank you for it. Bless us now. In Jesus' name, amen.